This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 146. We're recording on Thursday, February 25th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. It's a week we've been anticipating for a while. Um, we didn't know when it would come, but it came this week. Um, sorry to say uh, that Harper Lee passed away this week at the age of 89. She would have been 90 in April, on April 28th. Um, Nell Harper Lee, as I'm sure most of you, if you're listening to this show, probably are plugged enough into the news and the book news, especially to know that. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, we were just talking last week about what authors will be remembered, and you know, mm-hmm. with Toni Morrison's birthday last week, and how we will say, uh, you know, bouncing our grandkids on our knee or our grandpuppies or our, or whoever will be bouncing on our knee. That you know, we'll say, I can't believe we were alive at the same time Toni Morrison. Well. We forgot the obvious one, and only I think because the the corpus of work is so is so short. Um, sure, because she wasn't work. writing in our life. Wasn't writing in our lifetime. In a way, it feels already felt like an author from a different time, even though she's been alive as long as I've been alive. You know, for my mm-hmm. whole adult life, and my, my I get I don't, I don't know how she would have not been alive in my adult life, uh, my childhood life, and my adult life. She is quite remarkable. But suffice it to say that Harper Lee is in that pantheon, but she's been not only. Um, a private person. I wouldn't say a recluse because she was out and about in her town. There's yeah, some, some interesting discussion about her life as a private public figure, um, but not a you know not a hermit, so to speak. Uh, so interesting that we you know I think she goes on that list not in the same way that Morrison does, but she wrote if um, votes by readers and sales are any indication the American novel, and I'm not going to say great American novel because I think putting it. Adjuvated clouds, but she wrote the American novel of the 20th century to this, to this point. Unless something else kind of does a Moby Dick like resurfacing later, but that uh, was the gonna, novel. You're not going to argue about Invisible Man here. Well, I mean, I'm saying if sales and reader votes have ah, anything to do with it, sales and reader votes. Yeah, my Got own, it. Okay. my own, my own critical lens is secondary, of course. Um, I'm just, you know, by popular acclaim. I'm with you. Um, okay, she's the one. Um, you know, there's other things to say about it. What was your reaction? I mean, I'd probably like mine. It's like, oh, darn it. But, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. It was one of those things, as you said, at the top of the show that we had, we have known that this is coming. She has been in poor health or relatively poor health for, for quite a while. And all of the stories that we've had over the last few years about what was going on with the estate and what was going on with Go Set a Watchman sort of kept that perpetually in, in mind. So this wasn't necessarily a surprise. Um, but sad to see and also uh, wonderful to see the general tone of the bookish internet, um, remembering her, people talking about what her work meant to them. Uh, and I think we're going to start learning now some really interesting things mm-hmm. about Harper Lee um, shortly after she passed. I think, I believe she passed last Thursday and it was right after we had recorded our show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we've we've learned since then that she kept an apartment in New York for some time for like a tiny apartment for less than a thousand dollars, sort of lived incognito there some of the time. And really, you know, as you said, was not reclusive. She had a life. She just chose to keep it private um, from her readers and private from the general public. But I believe we're going to start learning you know, some some more th- of those things about this person that everyone is fascinated by and mm-hmm. who's certainly important in American letters. Um, I, I, you know, was not a hu- huge To Kill a Mockingbird yes. fan. we talked about that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't play a large role in my personal reading life. So I think I experienced this loss is different for me than uh, like James Salter mm-hmm. um, was, but for recognizing the death of someone whose work really is hugely significant to 20th century American literature. Um, that's a, a fascinating thing to see occur. And of course, a sad thing, um, wondering what else there might be or what else there might have been mm-hmm. from her. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my general. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's, I was I read a bunch of response pieces and remembrances. Jasmine Ward had an excellent one mm-hmm. in Entertainment Weekly. I don't think I have that in the show notes for us right now. I'll try to find it to put it in the show notes for the, the episode that go up on the site. Um, you know, and I was curious to see how Ghost of the Watchmen's release um, colored the the people's reaction. And it did to some degree. I think if I had to summarize the what people's memory of Harper Lee, how, how it was affected by Reese of Ghost of Washington. It was mostly, you know, it's too bad that that happened so soon. Um, I think we talked about on the show and the many times we talked about Ghost of the Watchmen, either I or you made the argument that I still kind of believe, whether or not it was mine or yours, that it would have been so much better, I think, if Ghost said a Watchman would have been released after she had died. Mm-hmm. And we knew it was posthumous. Um, we knew... We just, it was just, we just had more clarity. Because I, I think any, more than anything, well, that may not be true. I'm sure there's some people that this isn't true for. But for more than anything, for me, the clarity about what Ghost of the Mothman was and how it came to light is the detracting factor. Um, you know, we talked about that doesn't have front notes talking about what it is or end notes or anything else. Um, there's suspicion that she didn't, if she did sign or say something, that we're not sure that she really knew what was going on. We, we're just not super comfortable with the people that are in charge of her estate. Mm -hmm. But at least if the author is gone, you know who's calling the shots and the waters can't be muddied. And you can, you can sort of assess them on that, on that, um, uh, on that level. I, I feel a little of both ways about that. Um, I, I think if it was going to be, if the book was going to be packaged the way that the book was packaged with really no information Mm. about what it actually was, that that case would have been better for it to be after her death, where at least it's clear to readers who was making the decision. But for me, ideally, it would have, I think it it coming out while she was alive could have been really excellent um, for the conversation if HarperCollins had been upfront about what the book was and really packaged it appropriately with all of the disclosures and the useful information and been upfront with readers because that it went down in a way that made me feel like things were shady D- doesn't give me much confidence that if it had not been published until after her death, it wouldn't have been even shadier. Like now she's dead and we discovered a new yeah. novel that no one knew she had. I guess I, I guess for me that was going to be shady no matter what, but what wouldn't be shady was that Harper Lee signed off on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like 
as you said, I know you said this, like short of a video of Harper Lee saying, yes, this holding up the copy of the book saying, yes, I wanted to do this. Um, we just didn't, we just wouldn't know her, her participation. So I guess that's, that's the piece that really Mm -hmm. is the, the, the knife, the edge of the knife for me in terms of how to think about it. Cause if she really did approve it, that's a whole different, that's a horse of a completely different color. And if she didn't at all, then, then it's, it's, then that's also, at least I know how to deal with that in right, some way. True. It's that unknowability, the sort of Schrodinger's Mockingbird that we said before, <laughs> that we don't know that makes it so frustrating. Um, and again, short of a sort of cognitive proof of life in a video or something like that, we just never would have gotten there, where at least we would have clarity here that this is something the estate did. Um, you know, we could question the, the timeline, but whose decision was it for me is the sure. white hot center of the trouble. But anyway, <laughs> a remarkable life for Harper Lee. Um, uh, you know, who knows if they're going to bring other stuff out now? Maybe they will feel more liberated, um, you know, to to do other stuff with what's there. I know she was a um, a dedicated letter writer for throughout her her life. You you wouldn't be it wouldn't be out of turn as these estates go for a mm-hmm. volume of letters or diaries or something else to be published. Um, I would be shocked, frankly, if Harper Lee actually wanted that to happen, given what we know about. Um, how she she lived her life uh, in the public eye, um, but there we are. It's you know it's it's almost some. It is interesting that so, sort of a writer's public like kind of determines their you know their when they sort of quote unquote die in the public's eye. Like when you stop writing is kind of when you're out of the public eye, um, and it's been so long that it, it's it's an unusual sadness with Harper Lee's mm-hmm. death um, in this in this regard. Um, Another another passing of note this week, um, unfortunately, overshadowed happened on the same day. Uh, Umberto Eco, the the Italian novelist, philosopher, academic, um, died in Italy. Um, his most famous book, The Name of the Rose, is one that a lot of uh, readers have read. I have not read that one. I had to read some Umberto Eco in graduate school. Very sharp, um, very interesting stuff. I know very little about his work. Uh, personally, uh, I don't know if you do or not, but I thought for those of you who may not have heard that, that's one even more so than the Harper Lee news. I wanted to pass that along for Umberto Echo fans out there. Yeah, I don't know much about his work, um, and I wish that I did. I read part of the Name of the Rose early in my Dan Brown fandom, uh, as he, some of his work inspired the Da Vinci Code, or yes. you know, <laughs> heavily influenced um, the Da Vinci Code. And I saw some booksellers celebrating Echo's life and how many uh, customers they unwittingly yeah. sold uh, the name or got to unwittingly buy uh, the Name of the Rose and encounter something you know much more substantial. Um, but really a fascinating life as well. I think I'm going to be reading more about him here. Yeah, I think, I think given the cycle, it takes a little bit longer for the internet to spin up for especially work in translation, but, you know, more academic kinds of work. But the novel is, pop- the name of the rose popular is not pit- the pendulum, I think. There's something the pit in the pendulum? No, that's Poe. There's something else, oh. like Times Pendulum or something. <laughs> I think, I-, I could just be completely mismembering a different three-letter uh, surname. Um, uh, Echo's academic work, as I recall, was largely in langu- in languages and semiotics, very complicated, abstruse stuff, uh, a, a bright guy. And um, a lot of the work's available online. So if you want to go check him out, I, I highly recommend doing so. Um, so that's the sad news of the week. Um, you know, so here we are. Yeah, we have a very newsy news show. It is a newsy news show for February. This week. Um, um, should we do our own internal sponsor? What should we talk about for, for uh, ourselves? You want to, we can talk about the Book Riot store Let's for talk a about minute. the store for a minute. Yeah, tell me about the store. It's 
the Book Riot store. You go to store.bookriot.com. We have a ton of yay, I love books kinds of uh, t-shirts and hoodies and tote bags and coffee cups and there are tank tops coming soon. Uh, if you are listening as this show has just come out, we are running a sale right now where you can get any tote bag plus any little pouch um, for $25 or less. So snag that deal while you can. Um, after that sale, I believe it'll be two coffee mugs for $15. Ooh, there you go. So whatever you feel like stocking up on, whether it's travel or sitting at home, you know, sipping your favorite beverage from a wonderful bookish mug, we've got you covered. Uh, I have had so much fun running this for the last couple of years, and it's just, it becomes more and more fun. Uh, We partnered with Out of Print Clothing, so we also carry their full line of t-shirts with classic book covers on them. Uh, It's just a ton of stuff for living your bookish life, and we're pretty much always running some kind of fun promotion that lets you save money, bundle up interesting bookish gear. I think it's great for giving gifts to people who love books but are hard to buy actual books for. Um, You can Mm -hmm. get them something that is, you know, bookish accessories instead. Um, So do the tote bag plus pouch bundle for 25 bucks or less, just depending on how much, you know, the tote that you start with is. That's at store.bookriot.com. We also run um, sort of of semi-regularly specialty boxes that are themed. And right now we've got the steamy reading box which if you are into romance or you want to be into romance, the book has four of our favorite sexy reads. Um, there's also a nonfiction pick in there uh, that is so delightful that though I heard the warehouse workers were taking home the extra <laughs> ones uh, when they were packing them, along with some uh, themed cool items to go along with that. So you can get the steamy reading box for 100 bucks. It's worth about 125 uh, in contents total. So you're also getting some bang for your buck. And that's right there on the homepage at store.bookriot.com as well. So stay tuned. We're always rolling out new stuff. Um, I spend more time than I would like to admit thinking about cheeky bookish phrases <laughs> to put on t-shirts. And also the, our, our, well, not not our first, but one, our most, probably our most popular custom item I'm wearing right now, my Book Riot hoodie. Um, so if you're looking for mm-hmm. a another hoodie. It's a, yeah, it's an attractive I'm, and soft one, I have to say. Oh, they're so snuggly. I'm wearing currently the uh, pullover read or die mm-hmm. hoodie, which is also very comfortable. Uh, they're they're so great and comfy, and I highly encourage you. There's yeah. enough winter left. You need a hoodie. Okay. Well, there's a yeah, very newsy news, and I guess we're going to have to cook through some of this to some degree. Um, start with the CB, CCBC. The uh, Cooperative Children's Book Center. Uh, cooperative, this, these are Canadians, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, uh, Canadian um, nonprofit organization. And what they did is they went through the number of books that they received, um, you know, for publicity reasons, you know, just the, the stuff that gets sent to them. Um, they, they started to go- documenting statistics. This is related to, to diversity and uh representations of underrepresented groups in Canada. They've been doing it for 20 years. Um, the people that are, do, that are doing it are people of color and first and Native Nations people are inter, had been interested long before um, a lot of us woke up to this kind of thing. So I wanted to mention they've been doing this mm-hmm. for a long time and that, um, you know, th- that should be recognized too. Oh, it's at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was Canadian for some <laughs> no, reason. No, they're, they're American. There's something about like they're, they're it's spelling. It's the CBC. Yeah. I thought there was spelling or something. Anyway, 
um, sorry about that. Uh, oh yeah, okay. We've always received the majority of our books from mainstream U.S. trade mm-hmm. publishers, getting most t- new titles annually. I don't. I'm sorry to our friends yeah, in Canada for misattributing this to you. Um, they got about 3,400 books in 2015, and they did some counting. And uh, uh, you know, sadly, if you've been listening to this, you know kind of what to expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we've talked about their previous counts before as well. A um, um, hundred books were by black creators. Um, either illustrators or, or writers. So it's 100 out of uh, 3,400. So that's less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, 14 of those 100 had no visible African-American cultural content. Um, 173 books were by authors and or illustrators of Asian or Pacific heritage. So 70% more than by black authors. 53 books were by Latino, Latina authors and or illustrators. Mm -hmm. So altogether, um, and then 18 by American Indian First Nations authors. I'm going, they they ordered this in a way I wasn't expecting, so I'm putting Mm -hmm. them out of order. So it's 118 plus 173, so we'll call that 300. So about 360 or so out of 3,500. So, you know, 10%. Mm-hmm. And we know that the population, the, the percentage of Americans who aren't white is about 33, 35%. And that the majority of kindergartners this year are not white. Yeah, majority of kindergartners this year, I know, um, I just had a reason to look it up, that 46% of teenage peop- of, of kids younger than 18 in America are not white. So, you know, it's about three to four times, the, the, the ratio of representation is by creators about three to four times lower than what would be equitable. If 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 mere equity is is, our, is your goal, there's also some interesting and troubling stuff happening where we can see 261 of the books had significant African or African American yeah. content, but of those 261, only 86 were by Black authors or creators. So that's a, a notable number of books about African American themes and cultural issues being written and published and therefore money being made um, off of those issues and themes by people who are not of that culture. Um, Similarly, 41 books had American Indian or First Nations themes, topics, and characters, but only 17 of those 41 were by actual American Indian or First Nation people. 111 books had uh, Asian Pacific or Asian Pacific American content. Only 43 of those were by those people. So um, if I had to guess, and I think I would be correct in in my guess, um, we have here a lot of white people publishing a lot of books with content about cultures of which they are not a part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not problematic just yeah, on its face. face. It's, not, right. it's not problematic on its face. You can learn and research other cultures, but publishing working the way that publishing works, those are opportunities that are going to white writers that are not then going to writers of color who are better positioned to understand and represent their cultures. Um, And there were some stories floating around Twitter this week about um, writers of color whose books were rejected by publishers only to see the publisher pick up a book with a similar theme or storyline by a white writer and make a big deal of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, on its face, it's it's not necessarily troubling to write to have um, writers and creators write about a different experience or culture than their own, um, but really that's kind of only tolerable if, if the, the, other, the other even. the other the other cultural author, you know, the authors of different backgrounds have their shot have their swing at the plate as well. Um, 
So that's, you know, there's not much to say about that except to sort of continue the drumbeat. I think the only thing mm-hmm. to do, or one of the things we can do is sort of talk about these when they come out and say, yes, this is a problem. Yes, here are the statistics. For those of you who care about this, like we do, it's something to keep in your back pocket when you talk to people and you decide about what you're buying um, for your own kids, for other people's kids, um, and who you're going to support with your dollars. Okay, speaking of getting supported with dollars, uh, not oh. really dollars necessarily, but being supported, you know, This kind of thing is going to have to happen more often. I think Um, Simon & Schuster is launching an imprint called Salam Reads um, that is going going to be dedicated to uh, books um, featuring Muslim characters and stories. For Uh, children. For children, excuse me. I I forgot to mention that. Um, It's going to be headed up by uh, Zareen Jaffrey, who is an editor at Simon & Schuster. and they're going to they're going to do at least nine books a year, going all the way from board books to young adult. Uh, thrilled by this, I have to say, yep. I'm super excited to see what this is going to be like. Um, they have four books coming out in 2017. So if you want to mark your mark your literary calendars, Salam, uh, oh boy, Alaikum. I should know this better than I do. A picture book based on a song by the British teen pop singer Harris J. Others. Uh, Musa, Moises, Mo, and Kevin, a picture book about four kindergarten friends who learn about one another's holiday traditions. The Gauntlet of Blood and Sand by Karina Rayazi, about a 12-year-old Bangladeshi American who sets out to save her brother from a supernatural board game. And Yo, Yo Soy Muslim, a picture book by the poet Mark Gonzalez. So it looks like they're going, they don't have a young adult novel coming out next year, but there's a middle grade, it sounds like, um, and a picture book and a board book. So really interesting. Really really interesting. interesting. Um, This New York Times piece notes that Zareen Jaffrey had really long been thinking about the lack of Muslim characters in children's literature, and she's in a position uh, working for a publisher to do something about it. So very cool to see this happen. Um, We started talking about it a bit on the Book Riot back channel, and a few people said, you know, this looks awesome. I cautiously hope that it doesn't other the characters Mm. or the stories. Um, I think you're right that more of the we're going to need more of these. Um, And there was an interesting piece uh, that I don't think we can get into in the depth of the show today, but Molly McArdle Mm. um, published a piece in Brooklyn Magazine this week where she talked to 50 people in publishing about their experiences. Most of them are women, uh, LGBTQ folks, and people of color. Um, And there are some remarkable and troubling personal experiences Mm -hmm. that they've had um, feeling marginalized in publishing. And some of that connects into um, how deeply publishing cut budgets and imprints that's uh, specifically focused on marginalized groups after the recession in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the big houses cut entirely uh, their imprints for uh, African-American writers and African-American fiction and just kind of gave up on targeting those readers who want books and want to be served with books that are interested, interesting to them. Um, so it's cool also to see this sort of regeneration yeah. occurring. Um, this is a very of the moment thing that publishing is starting to pay attention uh, to serving previously underserved or just unserved audiences um, and recognizing that it's the right thing. It's also a good business decision. So I'm, I'm excited and really interested to see what comes next. What, what yeah. are these, what are the next imprints going to be that have a specific focus? Um, that's very cool. Um, um, you know, it's like any, any effort like this where you're trying to do something that you're not great at doing otherwise, even some, you know, it can even be something in your own life, you know, like new year's resolutions are a famous one, right? We're like, I'm going to mm-hmm. change and, the, the trouble can be, uh, especially in, in something like this where it gets separated out, that that will then be the place that 
the only place for Muslim themed stories for kids will happen at the publishing house. You know, that the other children's imprints and publishing initiatives at Simon and Schuster will sort of push or not worry about or not be concerned about or not think about publishing Muslim themed children's stuff in their own imprint because, well, that's where it goes over there. What you'd like to do is have this and also have space in this sort of more right. general imprints, right? So it's not an either or proposition, it's a both and proposition. Yeah, there's. Um, though, I'm guessing it's so horribly underrepresented anyway that this nine will be an improvement. Would you like to have the nine there plus sort of a bleed over into more awareness and more um, mindful thinking about the kinds of books being um, published over at Simon & Schuster? But a a very good first step. But it's not sort of time to declare victory and we sort of took right. care yeah, of our is, you know, Muslim representation. Right. It's not, got, you just, you, right. You know. The checkbox is not the only checkbox right. on That's the right. list for making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're talking about representation, Banned Books Week this yeah. week, which will be September 25th to October 1st, so we've got a while to plan for it, is going to focus on banned books written by people of color and the events will also look to examine why titles by diverse writers are so often challenged. Um, we'll put a link to this. Uh, It's just an announcement in Publishers Weekly in the show notes, but we have talked previously about how, uh, you know, first of all, there are very few books uh, by people of color that are published, period, but the books by people of color um, that are banned are, it's, are banned or challenged. It's hugely disproportionate. Mm -hmm. Um, Melinda Lowe analyzed lists from the past 10 years and found that um, over 52% uh, of the books that have been banned and challenged in the last 10 years were either works by people of color or works written about characters of diversity. Yeah. I mean, the Uh, the sad joke there is the only place that people of color are uh, equitably represented is in the books that we ban. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, You know, the the famous, the the famous Oscar Wilde quote goes something like the books, the world calls immoral or the books, the world that shows the world its own shame. Um, and mm-hmm. I think there's an element of truth. I, I might have mangled the, the verbatim read of that, uh, memory of that. But I think there's an element of truth to that, um, that people of color get, you know, the worst treatment. And that treatment is stuff we're not comfortable talking to our kids about. And the things we're not t- comfortable talking to our kids about are the things that get banned. So I think there's a pretty clear line of influence about why books by people mm-hmm. of color. And I would say, I would guess, too, that um, uh, women are equally, you know, represented there, talking about especially female sexuality um, and sexual assault. Um, and we don't want kids to read about that. Um, I think some that we don't want to them to read it, and some as I don't think we want to acknowledge it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't think there's any question either, really, ha- why those titles by diverse writers are no. so often challenged for all of the structural reasons that that you've just talked about. I'm really happy to see Band Books Week doing this. I'm happy to see sort of this accumulated pointing of attention mm-hmm. at this thing. It has felt like the conversation has been pushing along for a while and publishing is in its way, turning more attention uh, to, okay, now we really, something needs to be done. um, And the dominoes are starting to fall. It's There's real momentum, I feel, um, being gained here. And so it's exciting to see that. And there probably are many people who need the conversation about, um, first of all, just noticing that many banned books, disproportionately many banned books are by um, people of color and about the experiences that people of color have, and why that might 
happen. Um, so cool to see Band yeah. Books Week doing that also because they reach so deeply into um, schools yeah. and, and public libraries where the banning and challenging is most likely to happen. So it would be interesting to see if there are going to be like efforts to involve parents in those dis- in, in those discussions, um, talking to librarians and educators who are you know trying to decide about stocking books or teaching books that are on the challenged list. But that's going to be a cool thing to watch. And uh, Band Books Week is partnering with We Need Diverse Books as well. Yeah. Um, Shall we play a game? Shall we play a game? Um, This was found on the Book Riot back channel, and I haven't seen the list. Finally, Time Time did a survey about um, what the 100 most read female writers in college classes are. And they collected 1.1 million syllabi yeah. through the Open Syllabus Project, and about 70% of them were from U.S. universities. So I haven't looked at this, um, and I'm going to try to guess. I'm not going to try to guess all 100. I, oh, I, no. I guess I'll try to – I mean, I'll just think what I think is in the top 10. Okay, How well, I, I get, can tell you – I get 10 guesses. How about that? Sure. The okay. first two uh-huh. are technical books. Oh, so you were, that's rough. I'm not going to get yeah, those. Yeah, so you were never going to get those. Okay, so the first the, – the top 10 that I could reasonably have guessed, what, what are those technical books, if you don't mind? Saying? Okay, the, the first one, uh-huh. uh, which is on 3,998 of these syllabi, is a manual for writers of term papers, oh, yeah. theses, right. and dissertations by Kate L. Turabian. Uh, and number two, which is on 3,889 of the syllabi, is a pocket-style manual, The Bedford Handbook Rules for Writers, mm-hmm. a writer's reference. Which I've taught. Diana I've Hacker. used it in my own classes at one point. Tarabian, the top one, is a long, mm-hmm. uh, famous one. Okay. Okay, so starting at number three, uh, okay, no, okay, uh, you have three. a shot here. All right. I guess I'm going Jane Austen. She's on the list, on the but list. she is not first. Um, Mary Shelley. Uh, Mary Shelley is also on the list, but she is sixth. Uh, Wolf. She's on the list, but she is fifth. Uh, Tomo Morrison. Yep. Morrison Tomo. is three. Mm-hmm. She's three. She is the first uh, writer of non-technical books. Right. Wow. <laughs> so, wow, that's that's interesting. Okay. So it's Did Tomo I get any other, three. the top, I guess, now 12? Austin, Shelley, Wolf, any of them appear in the top 12? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Austin is four. Austin is Wolf four. Is, okay. Wolf is five. Shelley is six. So okay. you got so I'm missing three, four, three. five, and six together. No, Tomo is three. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm missing. Oh, okay. Okay, good, good. I'm not doing so bad so far. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So seven I'm looking for seven, eight. Is a textbook. Hmm. I'm not going to so get that. you're not going to get seven. Okay, what's that? But uh, seven is Human Anatomy and Physiology by okay. Elaine Nippon Marib. So okay. eight, nine, and ten, though, are okay. uh, are things you have a shot at. How about and 11. Emily Dickinson? Mm, no. She's not in the top 20. Okay. Zora Neale Hurston. She's 11. 11. Mm-hmm. Boy, I feel like I'm going to miss something big. Bronte? Uh, Charlotte Bronte is number 16. 16. It's feminist. Oh. Is it a novel? Uh, it is a short story. Short story. Oh. Uh, the Yellow Wallpaper? Yes. Yeah. Charlotte Perkins, Perkins Gilman, Gilman is 8. Number 8. Okay. Uh, Kate Chopin? She's 14. 14. Mary Wollstonecraft was number nine. Oh, there's Wollstonecraft. Okay. Uh, how about De Beauvoir? She gets taught a lot. She is not in the top 20. Not in the top 20. She's 24. 24. So I'm missing 10 and 12 right now. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Hence, I- I'm running out of off the top of my head. <laughs> so 10, uh, hmm. I don't know enough about... 
10. Oh, okay. Just tell me 10 then. To help. 10 is George Eliot. Oh, okay. Sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. And 12 is Harriet Jacobs. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Harriet Incidents Jacobs. Incidents in the Life yeah. of a Slave Girl. I, I would have... I, have, had I broken out my anthology and flipped through, I would have thought of Harriet Jacobs. I would not um, have thought of George Eliot. Not, not, yeah. not personally a fan. Alice Walker is 13. Okay. Kate Chopin is 14. Okay. Uh, 15 is a technical book. And then Charlotte Bronte is at 16 hmm. with Jane Eyre. Okay. Susan Sontag is number 18. And yeah. here's an interesting one. Barbara Bush, Reflections, Life After the White House is number 19. Wow. I would never have a million years <laughs> no, have guessed never, that. Uh, and then Hannah Arendt is number 20. Oh, and the philosophy courses, things, yeah. Yeah, Kelly, uh, Kelly Jensen, our coworker who found this list, was guessing, and I think that she, this is a good hypothesis this morning, that a lot of these are driven by either women in lit or like women's studies 101 courses, because yep. those are the uh, professors that are most likely to actually pay attention to having women on their reading lists, yeah. and well, so many Austin of these in the Shellen, top. I, I can tell you, just because I've taught survey courses, Austin <laughs> Shelley Wolf. Gilman, Wollstonecraft, I mean, all of these appear in the big, you know, the Norton anthology of uh, English literature, American mm-hmm. literature. So it's easy, you know, and it is interesting. I mean, I guess, I guess the other class would be philosophy and history where you have, like, I don't know in economics, for example, or political science, are they reading books from 100 years ago? Like, is there enough coalescing around specific authors in other mm-hmm. fields like there is in literature. They yes, you, you know, you should read Jane Austen and yes, Shelley and yes, Morrison. Um, I just don't know how they, how they work in other fields. It seems like the, there's such a wider variety of names and scholars and academics mm-hmm. that um, it's hard for them to have enough votes to sort of bubble up into the top, I, I would guess, 50 or 100 of these uh, of names. Uh, not a surprising, I mean, I, yeah. I did, I, my, my sense was pretty close. Um Nothing really would you there be surprised. Su- would you be surprised that Margaret Atwood comes in higher than Harper Lee? I was going to ask where Lee was. Harper um, Lee is number 50. Not really taught in college. Yeah, she was on 633 no. syllabi. How many was Atwood uh, Margaret on? Atwood would, on 670. She came in at number 46. So not a huge... Uh, that Atwood uh, number is going to climb difference. over time. I believe so, yes. Um, I think so. Uh, yeah, Lee's not really taught in college. It's a high school book. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know, if you teach similar themes, I think, you know, I'd be curious. Flannery O'Connor it is, takes some of the Southern literature juice out of uh, Lee's engine as you get into college. Um, Flannery, oh, here's a go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was here's a fun one. J.K. Rowling is on the list. Oh, boy. number seventy-one. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there are a lot of children's literature courses um, yeah. in college, and you know, an interesting text to 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 teach in the mass media popular culture courses as those become. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one I was gonna. Oh, uh, how about our? How about uh, Anne Rand? Do you see? Oh, I saw her when I was scrolling. I was wondering. Now I have to. She's number fifty nine. Okay, yeah, fifty nine. This um, is a fun. This is a fun guessing game. Let's see. I'm trying to think of other like Bell Hooks or oh, what. About, I saw Bell Hooks. She's up pretty high. Yeah, she's um, taught a lot. Where Judith did Butler, she... Julia Kristeva. Judith Butler's twenty eight. Oh, Judith Butler's Bell twenty eight. Wow. Bell Hooks is twenty three. Yeah, feminist. An intersectional feminist, um, mm-hmm. black feminist, I think it's fair to say, with Bell Hooks. Yeah, Betty Friedan is 33. I was going to so ask about like Steinem Friedan, anything like that. I didn't see Steinem. She might be on here. I just missed yeah. it um, if she was. But de Betty Beauvoir, Friedan's did you 33. Tell me where de Beauvoir yeah, Simone de Beauvoir was uh, 24. 24. And where was Dickinson? I haven't seen her. Really? She might be on here and it's just not Boy, popping I'm really out. surprised. I'm really surprised she's not in the top 50 at least. Um I, I mean, if I if I had chips to bet, you know, if I was you know wagering money, I would put her in the top twenty for sure. 
So I'm surprised. Uh, I have a personal affinity for Dickinson, so that will skew my uh, sense of relative importance. But also, She's in, not on this list. Also, in every uh, syllab- uh, every anthology, you're going to get a couple <laughs> of uh, Emily Dickinson poems, only, if only because it costs very little uh, ink to pr- to print them. <laughs> yeah, very interesting, interesting list. Um, and you know, there's some diversity at the top: Jacobs, mm-hmm. Hurston, um, Alice Tomo, Walker, right there. Tomo. Not bad. Black women, interestingly. Um, you're not seeing. Uh, I wonder what the f- the first non-black woman name is, like Amy Tan or something like that. Like I don't even. Oh, Amy Tan was there. I just closed the tab. Yeah. I thought we were done. No, it's okay. Yeah, we'll maybe we'll look <laughs> it up next time. But um, yeah, that's a good list. Uh, a heck of a effort from time. That's a takes a lot of work. Yeah. Um, other this is back to industry news. Um, mm-hmm. This one kind of flew under the radar. Didn't you think so, that more people weren't talking about this? Do you know where I'm going? The Barnes & Noble yeah. thing? It's weird. It's so weird. So in conference call talking about second quarter results, Barnes & Noble CEO Ron B-O-I-R-E, Boar, <laughs> Boar um, said that the nation's largest bookselling chain was working on a new prototype store. More details emerge about the creation of a bricks-and-mortar store that integrates online elements at the annual E-Tail West Conference in Palm Springs. Um, one of the challenges of the store is going to be the digital experience. I don't think you're until you're fully connected that you're going to be providing the full experience. Um, so, some new kind of Barnes and Noble bookstore uh-huh. that will have uh, magical internet dust on it. That yeah, the headline is Barnes and Noble. Like the thing that people have been saying is like Barnes and Noble to open an Amazon style store. Yeah. <laughs> And it was like, what? What is happening? Yeah. Well, that d- does that sound? Does that accurate but, seem? Does that description seem accurate to you? Yeah, Amazon d- style. What else besides uh, it's going to be connected to data? Right. It's not, like it doesn't it's say it's going to be small. It doesn't say they're going to match online prices. Internet. Like it's yeah. I think they're getting at fully connected mobile desktop and store mm. to provide a full experience. And so maybe they're looking at ways that people can use apps inside the store while they are browsing. Mm-hmm. Um, they've certainly ne- never yet succeeded at like really how to nail the nook business no. in store. I don't think. Um, so I think it's, this is timely. It's really actually overdue um, to do something with their stores that is more internet connected and, you know, forward looking. Um, but I'm not sure that the Amazon analogy is anything other than just a catchy headline. Yeah. And what is it going to be? I mean, may- maybe they could use Barnes and Noble buying data f- uh, from online to or stock you the can stores get the, differently. I don't know. Or you can get the online price in the store. Yeah, maybe. You know, the other thing, let's see, what else is Amazon doing? They're doing the covers out thing. They're using, they're sort of using shelf talkers mm-hmm. that um, incorporate reader ratings and reviews. Um, yeah. But we sort of said the Amazon store is not that interesting to us. It, it doesn't do anything that really blows my hair back. I, One of our contributors thought, oh, went and visited yeah, that Amazon Peter store Damien and was did. like, yeah, it's a bookstore. It's a bookstore. Um, Peter also wrote a while back about 10 suggestions for Barnes & Noble. It's been a few years since he wrote that. Oh, right, right. And um, he and I, I don't remember if it was in the comments or on Twitter or in the book where I backed on Anyway, he and I were going back and forth. And one thing that I th- that occurred to me while we're having that conversation is that you know, I'd like to see Barnes & Noble try some sort of like Chipotle maneuver, though this is a bad example now because no one wants to eat Where Chipotle. Where is this going? Well, like Chipotle was owned by McDonald's, but mm-hmm. it's like it's a smaller, different experience. It has a smaller menu. It's different. You know, it's like – Oh, you're thinking like boutique Like a boutique kind of store. Like I don't know that trying to make it like an independent bookstore is the right move, but make it more 
of a smaller, more intimate, different experience. Like it's a really different kind of thing um, where, you know, it, it, it's not called Barnes & Noble. It's called Kevin's or whatever, whatever else it might be. But it really tries to reimagine a different kind of experience for a different kind of, uh, of buyer. Yeah, something with a focus on hand selling. And yeah, that, right. That book shopping experience that people do enjoy, which is the direction that Barnes and Noble has been moving away mm-hmm. from the last yeah. several years. It's been a they've had an emphasis on hiring Sidelines, salespeople yeah. that were great at technology and that could s- try to sell the nook to everyone mm-hmm. who walked in the door. And they right have increased the presence of like games and toys and coloring books and sideline non book items in the store, which I get, you know, there are reasons for doing that. But I do think it would be interesting to see them attempt to go in the other direction and create something that is a more personal shopping experience. The Chipotle reference just threw me. I was like, how are, roll, roll your own like book Yeah, things. you're going to eat the books. That's what I was going for. Uh, <laughs> just, Liberty will be your only customer. Coming. Um, yeah. But she's a voracious one. No, so that's right. You survive sur- uh, trying to sell um, book burritos to live. Um, but the other thing, too, that Barnes & Noble strategy, really to this point, they they need these huge spaces, you know, multi-thousand square foot spaces for all the stuff that they do, like the magazines and the cafe and the toys and the Legos and the huge kid section, the DVDs. Like, could they do a stripped down version that could go in an airport? Like, why don't they? I mean, I've never really understood that. Why don't they? Why aren't there Barnes and Nobles and airports and in malls that are just a smaller version of it? I've never understood that. Um, people have affinity for the brand; they know what they're doing. They have to, but they they seed all these other things. Unless they can have a big box Barnes and Noble store, they can't put a store anywhere, which means you're only going to be in suburbs, right? Where there's or mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of parking, or in horribly expensive prime retail areas in Manhattan, which they've had to close down, or the city center. So. There's a lot of spaces that they can't inhabit because their strategy has has been monolithic, like literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it makes a lot of sense to try something smaller and more nimble and more flexible. Um, though this, it does seem the hour seems late uh, for Barnes and Noble to to sort of have this occur to them. I guess that this is something they should try. I'm not optimistic, as maybe my tone uh, indicates here <laughs> at the end. Um, all right. I will hopefully have a, I hope we'll have a contributor who lives wherever they open yep, this thing right. and can go wander around it and confirm the experience. But, um, I mean, related also this week, we got news mm-hmm. that ABA announces every year, sort of the new, the number of new bookstores open that opened in the previous year. Um, this, uh, in 2015, pardon me, uh, the American Booksellers Association welcomed 20 new independent bookstores opening for business in 31 states and in the District of Columbia. It includes a cook, children's bookstore, a cookbook shop, and cafe, and 16 branches or satellites of existing businesses, which is interesting that 16 of them are sort of expansions or secondary locations. Um, and then 16 ABA member stores were bought by new owners over last year. Two bits of data that they don't ever give us that I always complain about. You know what yep. they are. One is how many closed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And two, how many bookstores open that are not members of the American Booksellers Association? Because not every of them are, right? Is that my understanding? Right. Is that not all that bookstores are members of the American Booksellers Association? So this is the only data we get. Unfortunately, we don't know what was there a, a net plus. That's what we really want to know, right? Right. We want to know is there, which direction is the slope Was there a going? net gain uh, of bookstores? And the American Booksellers Association could tell us. They got out of the habit, or I, I would guess that they got out of the habit when the numbers were lopsided in the other direction when, you know, in the 2004s to 2010, mm-hmm. really, um, that six to seven year period, um, I know I wasn't paying attention as much then as I do now, but bookstores were, were really under extreme pressure and a lot of them closed. 
Um, but it seems that the stories we're getting now is that the direction's going the other way. And it would be nice for them to, like, solidify that sensibility yes. with, you know, a net seven. You know, that would be fine. I mean, I don't sure. think anyone's asking for all of these to be plus. Growth is growth. Growth is growth. Um, and then the, also the number of – I don't know the number. Do you or have any sense of a ratio of the number of American independent bookstores that are America, they're part of the American Booksellers I... Association? Do you know – I don't know if anybody does because the way to count is to look at the ones that identify themselves and sign up for yeah to be ABA members. Um, You'd have to do something like look at the phone book and like right, which of the bookstores and then cross yeah, reference them or against. like business licenses or something yeah. like it would be really difficult. Um, there are s- several thousand members uh, member stores I think in the um, ABA mm-hmm. or a couple thousand. Um, it's I think not it was a like small fourteen number. or fifteen hundred is my memory. Okay, yeah. that may be so. Um, and then you've got like a jillion, you know, all the little like mom and pop used bookstores. And, and those typically uh, aren't members, right? Those typically right, aren't. Typically used they're bookstores not. Um, ABA is mostly um, bookstores that focus on new titles or that at least carry new and some of them carry new and used. Um, but yeah, the, the used bookstore is a totally kind of different animal and there are so very many of yeah. those and we don't really have any information about it at all. The used book market, I mean, we've talked about this before on the site and on the show, I think, is a, you know, it's... um. It's dark matter in terms of the statistics we do and don't have. Like how many books are, used books are sold mm-hmm. how, and for what volume? <laughs> what are they? You know, you think, we think we sort of joke um, that book scan numbers are uh, <laughs> incomplete. Well, it, 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 looks like the, 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 uh, Wiki, it looks like Wikipedia compared to the numbers we have about used bookstores. Um, I, again, I don't know this. If there are bookseller, more active booksellers out there than Rebecca and I are, I'd like to know if you can give us any information about, you know, what percentage of independent bookstores that sell front list or new books are uh, members. Is it unusual for a, a independent bookstore not to be a member? Um, like the, the bookstores that I know that in Brooklyn and here in Portland and other places, would it be surprising to hear that one of them isn't a member of the American Bookstore yeah, Association? I just don't know. My sense is yeah, that it's... 90%, but I, I don't know the answer for real. Anecdotally, like Rich and Richmond might be weird, but of the four or five independent bookstores that I can think of off the top mm-hmm. of my head here that carry frontlist titles, only one is an ABA. Is number. that right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I might have to look into this um, just because I don't like not knowing things that are possible to know. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's see. What else? We, we got a few more. Oh, adaptation well, news? Yeah, let's, let's do, do that. Let's do that, and then we'll wrap up the show maybe. Uh, so Ava DuVernay, who uh, was involved with, what is it now? My brain just black. Selma. <laughs> Selma. Yeah. I can see the picture of the yeah, people yeah, marching yeah. across the bridge. <laughs> Selma. Uh, she is going to be, she signed on to direct an adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time mm. for Disney. Oh, there's the word Selma is in this piece, of course. Of course. And now my eyes have just uh, decided to light on it. <laughs> um, she's teaming up with Frozen writer and co-director Jennifer Lee um, to bring, of course, it's Madeline uh, Lingle's 1963 classic to life if you don't know a wrinkle in time it has it's a teenage girl who embarks on an interdimensional adventure yes. um, after her father who's a scientist mysteriously disappears um so this really different subject matter mm-hmm. um for her from selma but certainly a talented and really interesting woman um she's also apparently negotiating a role directing intelligent life which is a thriller by um, one of the writers of Jurassic World. Yeah. So she's doing all kinds of things. 
things. Colin Trevorrow, um, yeah, he wrote and direct. Uh, he directed Jurassic World, and he's directing Star Wars Episode Nine. So also a big name uh, associated there. It makes me interested and hopeful for what the casting will be like mm-hmm. for uh, for her version of A Wrinkle in Time. Because mm-hmm. I think the everything that I've seen attached to it previously is all white people all the time. And for the kind of story that it is, it doesn't need to be. Yep. Um, the the screenwriter for Wrink- the, the, the adapter, the screen adapter will be Jennifer Lee, who was the uh, Frozen writer and co-director. So mm-hmm. that's also very interesting. Uh She's a Duvernay is very interesting. Has a lot of interesting she things is. to say. Um, she was in talks to direct Marvel's Black Panther movie, um, which now Ryan Coogler, who directed Creed, is directing. She had some interesting things to say about why she didn't take it. And she says, "I, you know, when you get in that machine, you're making a Marvel movie. I'm not making an mm-hmm. Ava movie, mm-hmm. uh, which is very interesting and tells you something about maybe the latitude she's going to be given here. Um, oh, that is interesting. That maybe she will be able to do a little bit more than." she could do in a, in a bigger sort of franchise than this. This is starting from square. Well, there are four Wrinkle in Time books, three. I can't remember them now. Swiftly, tintil- Swiftly Tilting Planet and Wind in a Door. And there might have been like a fourth post-epilogue one or something. I think it has the potential to be a great movie series. Um, mm-hmm. Should be a wonderful time at the movies if done well. Um, and every reason to believe it will be done well here. Um, speaking of young adult stuff, um, we'll oh, take our, no. second, our second internal sponsor, our friend, coworker Kelly Jensen, writing, um, distributing every other week an email newsletter for us at Book Riot called What's Up in YA. She's linking to the most interesting news stories. She's linking to the most interesting new book releases um, in YA and some whatever else is going on in the world of YA you want to keep up there. She's as plugged in as anyone out there. Um, you can go to bookriot.com. And we have a site redesign, too, it's worth mentioning, I guess. Um, Book Riot got a, oh, yeah. got a, site, a facelift. Um, but one thing that's dramatically improved is the search function. I don't know if you ever tried to search on the old book, right? Not a super, um, generative experience. Let's put it that way. But the new search is great. So if you just use search and do what's up in YA, you can find out, um, how to sign up there. I'll also put a link in the show notes to what's up in YA, make it very easy. So you can email every other week, rounding up the most interesting new books and news stories in the world of YA. Um, the first one was out on the 15th and the next one comes out on Monday. So um, you'll yes. be if you sign up after hearing this, you won't get it for a couple of weeks. But there we are. When you said we were going to YA, I thought we were going to talk about this Richmond story that is making <sighs> me sad. So I'll just shout it out for Richmond, Virginia people. Yeah, uh, Virginia residents in general. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. But um, Richmond, uh, Virginia, the Virginia legislature legislature uh, is considering a bill that they currently have. It's it's like essentially unopposed mm-hmm. that would make Virginia the first state in the country that has laws about allowing parents to block their children from reading any book in school if they contain sexually explicit material. And of course, sexually explicit is in the eye of the beholder in many cases, um, as we've heard time and again from the Mm -hmm. titles that parents have attempted uh, to challenge from schools. But under the bill, kindergarten through 12th grade teachers would be required to, quote, directly identify the specific instructional material and sexually explicit content contained in such material. Parents could opt their children out from reading the material if they found it objectionable, and the teacher would have to find the student something else to read. Um, Many schools are doing something like this on essentially an ad hoc hoc basis, or when a parent objects, then they handle it. Um, And those often go sideways. Um, 
this, you know, one of the one of the Republican representatives uh, who's supporting it says that books like Beloved plant the seeds of evil in the minds of young people. And this is just a quote that has to be read out loud because it's bonkers. Evil is just when you plant the seed, it's a kitten. You feed it, it becomes a lion and it eats you. Uh, and so that's someone who is making laws here in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, another person who's involved with this um, says that she thinks it's a slippery slope. This is a, a Democrat who opposes it. Great literature is great because it deals with difficult human conditions, not because it's easy. Um, and there's an interesting comparison further down in the piece that says, you know, parents can opt their students out of sex ed if they find that material great. objectionable. And so they should be able to opt their students out of this. And that, like, no, we need to go the other direction on both. Of yeah, one stupid actual. thing authorizing a second <laughs> stupid thing. That's just what I like to see. This is two wrongs not making. Well, a and right it connects with this. What we're talking about the books that get banned by people of color because right. it says this all started with. I think we started. We we talked about this original story of trying to ban. You mm -hmm. know, being uh, Laura Murphy, this 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 mother being upset about Beloved. Yeah. Um, and Which, that's you know sort of the, the the snowflake that got the snowball rolling on this, and this is where we are. It, you know what? Um, if you're going to talk about slavery, if you're writing an honest book about slavery, it's going to be very difficult to keep like the sexual stuff out of it. And to make it unobjectionable yeah, to yeah, anyone. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand. It should be objectionable. And, and make um, no mistake, Beloved is a rough go to read, but it should be. That should be a rough yes. go. I, I, I don't, it should be I don't, a rough I don't go. think, I, I, would, I guess what I would do is sort of refute the premise of like, say, well, it's not that bad. No, it should be that bad. It should be it hard. Should, it should right, be yes. difficult. That, that's the point. It's not a. It's not a bug. It's a feature of reading about slavery that it will make you uncomfortable. And there's stuff that your 17 year old um, kid is uh, not used to reading about. That that that's what's the point of it is. If if you like me are a fellow Virginian, you might want to pay attention to this and contact yeah, your yeah, representatives. State, state legislator. Uh, if you're a parent with kids in school uh, and you don't want to see this happen, you might want to take some action there. When I was back in Kansas City a couple weeks ago, I heard a story on the radio about something similar. Uh, the Kansas legislature is considering a law that would make it a crime for teachers to teach anything that the lawmakers after the fact determined to be damaging. <laughs> That's got to be again. I mean, that has to be uncommon. Like, that's not. You can't commit a crime that's not on the book. I mean, you just can't do. It's just so absurd. Right. This it would be like these teachers are teaching this thing. Someone reports it. Oh, that uh, was that a crime. They, you know that they um, find it damaging. Right. And now that you mention the, it, the wording of the bill is so. And I think we actually talked about that on the yeah, show too when it was first proposed. That the wording is so vague as to basically be if anyone finds anything right. uh, objectionable or potentially damaging, they can at least attempt to you know, sue the teacher or have them charged with the crime. So these are things that are happening. Um, if you're living in Kansas or Virginia, I have had the uh, interesting experience no. of living in both. Yeah, it just follows you around, doesn't it? Um, it does. It's probably me. Yeah, probably you. I was just going to say it's probably you. <laughs> um, that's our show. Thanks as always for listening. You can find show notes. The new way to find this really uh, is just to go. We have a whole new section on the podcast uh, for podcasts for listening at the bottom of the show. Um, you can find it there. Do go check it out. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com if you got feedback for us. Uh, what's up with YA newsletter? Go check that out. And uh, store.bookriot.com. If you've never checked it out, uh, 
bookish gear from us and our friends of Outer Print, all kinds of things that you can find. The deal right now is what? Something a tote in a bag for 25 It is. Get a tote bag and a pouch for 25 bucks or less. And on Tuesday next week, it will roll over to be two mugs for yeah, $15. Yeah, so probably by the time you're listening to this, is two yeah. mugs for 15 is going to be the one that's available. Um, thanks so much for listening. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, have a good one. Mm-hmm.